This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Oh, hey. It's just Crystal here, just sitting here in uh, quarantine on day 50,000, like the rest of you. <laughs> uh, I wonder how you all are. How are you? I wonder what you're doing for the, your community or yourself. I wonder if you have days that you feel helpless and out of control. I know I do. Lately, I have felt like I just can't find my space. I'm, I'm getting there. But my podcast room has been taken over by my wife, who needs to work because she's her only income. And my daughter is like a Montessori child, and I'm the opposite of a Montessori mom. So I'm homeschooling, and I don't even know if there's a point some days. Uh, this this week, her school is going to be uh, helping out, which is I'm so thankful for. But man, I've just had some days like I've felt like I've got nothing accomplished, and like I've failed. And I have days that I can't even look at social media at all because I just compare myself to other people, you know, that are out there in the world conquering it and uh, making bread with their kids. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm just thankful for like five seconds of a, you know, family puzzle that brings us peace. It's just, man, my house is just riddled with anxiety right now. And it's just manifesting with the pandemic. It's a lot. And uh, I'm just acknowledging that. It's a lot. And you know what? Sometimes just acknowledging it is enough, darn it. So if you're at home and you're sometimes losing your mind, hi. Me too. I'm right there with you. Uh, some days I'm, I don't feel that way at all, you know, and I'm grateful and thankful for everyone around me. But it's the unknown. It's like we don't know how long. And oh, man, it is just rough. And in these moments, I'm trying to seek value. Like, where do I see my value in this world? And I didn't know when I released this podcast that there'd be this situation that we're in. And um, this podcast, honestly, has just become huge in value for me. So thank you for listening. Honestly, it's, you know, helped me focus in times I needed it. And um, I've needed this podcast. I've needed this moment that I'm having right now so badly. So thank you for listening. And thank you to all my guests that have been on. Oh, my God, I don't know where I'd be without their bravery. Anna, Anna, Anna this week, number six. Here we are, everyone. Um, what I love about Anna is that she's extremely uh, intentional with her words, and she's extremely thoughtful. She thinks before she speaks. She has a calming nature about her, like so calming. And for someone like me, that's kind of a spazoid hyper energy. Her, just being around her makes me calmer. And I hope through you listening, you also feel that calm. For Anna, I picked a quote from Brene Brown, an author who I love so much. Uh, Brene Brown said, you can either walk into your story and own your truth, or you live outside your story, hustling for your worthiness. I picked this quote for Anna because, you know, she didn't stay outside of the truth. She didn't say, I'm just going to hustle around my whole life and try to find my worthiness. She walked right into it and hit it head on. There's no spoilers here, I know, but her story is unique in the sense that there wasn't a specific physical altercation. And it's important that we notice all trauma. Trauma can be so many different things. It can be psychological, it can be emotional, it can be neglect, it can be so many different things. And of all the guests that I had on, 
some parts of Anna's story really got me. Um, I had to talk about some of it in my own therapy. It was something that I could relate to. There were numerous things in her story that I personally could relate to. And the other thing to take note here is that all the trauma, it doesn't matter what kind it is, it manifests itself in the same way. So you'll hear how she came down with complex PTSD, an eating disorder, multiple other things that she's had to find a way to deal with. And she did. She was brave enough to hit it head on, which is why I use that Brene Brown quote. She shows what's on the other side when you're brave enough to face it. And you can hear how much she's had to go through to get there. And I hope you find peace, even if it's just for the next hour that is yours with no interruptions. I hope when you listen to Anna's story that it calms you and that you find the peace that I found. Because re-listening to the recording that we did and doing all the editing, I, I found myself, and it could be because of the pandemic, I, I don't know, but each guest brings their own energy for me. And re-listening to this story and Annie's story, it reminded me of what a fighter she is and what a fighter I am and the things that I've been through and that I know I can survive right? And sometimes the weirdest things can make us feel that way. So I hope that this story brings you some lighthearted reminders that, hey, we are all in this together. And no matter what we're going through, if we are together, we can get through it, right? We can get through this time. Anna is brave. She's a complete badass. The fact that she uses, you'll hear her talk about how she used her education to free her mind and how much it helped her. So here we are, number six, number six. And as always, please go into this podcast with an open heart, an open mind. Use that radical hospitality, no judgment. And I love you. Thanks for listening. Hope you're taking care of yourself. I am from the Northwest. I've been here most of my entire life. Um, I had a little bit of a wild time after I graduated from high school and lived on the East Coast for a little while, but Northwest, born and bred, yeah. Born and bred. So were your parents together when you were born? They were. um, And I think that they really loved each other, which was like a cool thing to see. I think it's important for... um, kids to know that their parents love each other, whatever, whatever that looks like yeah, or that they respect each other. Yeah. They, so my parents were together, um, you know, in the seventies, they met in in the early seventies and they got married and they had us, they had my brother and I, and we lived in the same house growing up and, um, yeah, they, I, I could tell pretty early on that my mother was like really having a hard time with my dad, just being, um, being able to intuit, intuit that, um, maybe that started, my brother's three years older than me. So when he, my, my father always had a really difficult time with my 
brother. And I'm not, I'm not really sure why I've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about why he was so much more abusive to my brother than he was to me. And, um, you know, I have a lot of compassion and love for my father, even though we don't have a relationship anymore. And all of the things that he went through as a child and all the things that he saw, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And two truths can exist at once. Like he can love us. Yeah. And not treat us right. Mm -hmm. And I think that he just wanted my brother to have the skills that he needed to like be a good, strong man. And his way of doing that was to just be really hard on him. And my brother has been and will always be a very sensitive person and just did not respond to that. And the more he didn't respond to my father's like force, the worse it got. And it like really drove a wedge in between my, I think my mother and him. So how, how, how old were you when you noticed that this was starting to happen? Um, And, or I'm assuming you were also abused by him? Well, so uh, here's the thing about that. I don't know that I would have categorized what he was doing as abuse, and I didn't until therapy. And I had this moment when I was in therapy where I was like, oh, holy shit, like my my staying under the radar, like my ability to stay under the radar is like he was like, abusing me too. So, you know, I, I always was scared of my dad. I always really loved him, but I was always scared of him. He was a Marine and in Vietnam. And so he had, I mean, not only did he have a lot of hardship growing up, he, he was in Vietnam in a very bad situation. He was, um, Basically, like you can think of what he did as like being a Navy SEAL. And so in Vietnam, he he had some terrible situations that he was in. And, um, you know, looking back on it, he was he's been living with undiagnosed PTSD from that. Oh, yeah. That Without ex- a doubt. Yeah. Without, with, from that experience all that time. And, you know, in the 80s, we didn't talk about this stuff. We didn't know what it was and he was just toughing it out. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't make any of the things that he did okay, but it does provide an avenue for compassion and understanding, which I think is really important. Um, Personal responsibility has a big part to play in that, you know, people can't just hurt you and treat you bad and say, well, I'm sick. That's not, that's not an excuse to treat people the way we were treated, but it, it's, it's easier to have compassion for that. For sure. For sure. So I, I think I have always, when I was a child, I lived like walking on eggshells. I never knew what I was going to get. He was just like this, um, 
rage monster. Like he would go off at seemingly any perceived slight by another person or an inconvenience or, I mean, just anything that you can imagine would set him off. you never knew. No, no. And um, so I got really good at being able to read situations and rooms and um, that's a great ability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a cool, yeah. that's a cool thing to be yeah. able to have, to like be able to walk into a room now and like be able to take the temperature of it or, yeah. you know, see a friend and they're, you know, putting a mask on and yeah. I'm able to see through that pretty easily. But the reason I, you know, that came from trauma. Right. And I, you know, just watched him explode so many times. And when you're a little kid, it's ter- it was terrifying to watch him be so angry and scary. He never hit me. He never hit my mother. Um, he did hit my brother, but not like he wouldn't. I, I think of, you know, the kinds of beatings you see on TV or read about in books or whatever, that didn't happen. It was just, it always seemed, I don't know how else to describe it, but like appropriate for this situation, which I know is a terrible, it was never appropriate, but I could like understand why that was happening. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Um, But he was just... um, chaotic and unpredictable. And being a grown person, I understand in a, in a mother myself, like how, how, um, unhealthy that is for children and constantly being on guard. That's, it's traumatic. Like not only witnessing the things that he did, but having to feel that way all the time is not healthy. No. So it's, you you felt I'm assuming unsafe like often. Yes, or I mean I never I never was afraid that he was going to hurt me, like physically hurt me, but he hurt us in all kinds of other ways. So yeah, I guess I was scared all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure that's the truth for your brother. Oh yeah. Yeah. And your mother. So what, how old were you when you started noticing your mom shifting? I think, so I was saying earlier, he's, he's about three years older than me. And when he, um, started growing, so right when around, when he was like 12 or 13, um, things started to get really bad between him and my dad. And that's when everything just really, really ramped up and my my brother started resisting which i think is really cool i'm i've always been kind of proud of him yeah for doing that just resisting in his sort of own like really passive aggressive way but that's the only tool he had you know i think kids use the tools that they have to be able to navigate situations and cope with things you know when you're a little kid you can't drink or smoke or take drugs or do anything. So kids do what they can. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
so he was about 13. So I guess I was about 10. And by the time I was 13, my, it was like full chaos 100% of the time in my house. My mom and my dad were fighting. Um, so, uh, gosh, let's see. I was, I think I was, I was 13 and my brother was 15 and he tried to commit suicide. And this is it. This is a good example of, of how my household was. So, um, I think my brother had just had it. I think he didn't know what to do. You know, your home is supposed to be a place where you are safe from the world. And if you're not safe in your home, where, where can you be safe? It's a place for acceptance and belonging and community. Yeah. And that's really sometimes the only place that people find that is in their home. And he was, I can't even imagine feeling that way being that young. And, um, my, my dad was at work. I was, we were not in school that day. I I don't know if it was in the summer or what, but I remember that we were not in school and I had been running errands with my mother and we came home and I thought, geez, the house smells weird. What's that weird smell? And um, we both noticed it as we walked into the hall and my brother came out of his room and my mom went over to him and he whispered something to her. And of course I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And she just started screaming, screaming. And they both went into his room and she started, she kept scream crying. It was terrible. And I didn't understand what was going on. And she made the decision like very quickly, which it was the right thing to do to get him help. And what the smell was, was, um, he had actually pulled the trigger on a gun and <gasps> it, um, oh my God. it, it was just, I don't know, luck that it didn't actually hit him. I don't know if it jerked in his hand. Um, it was a big rifle. It wasn't a handgun. If it had been a handgun, it would have been a different story that I'd been telling right now. Um, but it just jerked and, um, fired the bullet into the ceiling instead of into his body. But we could, we could smell the gunpowder is what we were smelling. And she, she came out of his room and said, like, your brother has just tried to kill himself and we're going to the hospital and literally just left me. They just left me. And, um, I didn't know, I was so scared. I didn't know, um, what to do or who to call. Nobody came to get me. Nobody asked if I was okay. Um, and I think now like in my home, I don't know how I could ever do that. I, know. I don't know how I could ever do that to my child. Like if something happened, I would make sure that somebody went and made sure that she was okay and like took her and made sure that she was fed and all of those things. And um, no, they just left me. And I don't remember them ever asking if I was like, okay or if I needed help which of course I did and I also remember feeling like 
getting the impression that it was like super shameful, the thing that had just happened. So I didn't feel like I could like talk to my friends at school or a teacher or anyone. I, I just felt very isolated and afraid. And so I just, I just did what I always did was just to sort of fly under the radar, be a good kid. I got good grades. I had nice friends. I was good at sports and I just stayed out of the way. And that's what I was telling you earlier is like the form of abuse was neglect. Yeah. And I, I know that they were doing the best they could with the tools that they had. And I think that I just got, I just went through the cracks, but that was, um, something that I started pushing back against really, really, really hard on later when I was a more grown teenager. So sort of this series of events of my life is sort of between the ages of 13 and I don't know, 22, just like one disastrous thing after the next. So my, that happened with my brother and then my mother kicked my dad out of the house and he proceeded to become just kind of a raging alcoholic for a period of time and so, so, so scary. He was like obsessed with like reuniting our family or like getting back together with my mom and she was just not having it, which I can't believe that she put up with it for as long as she did. I know, how brave of her. Yeah, yeah. And she didn't, you know... She didn't have a lot of tools or support either. So that I didn't have tools or support is not surprising. Right. So I think that she just finally had it with him and she she kicked him out on my, I think it was on my 13th birthday, right around there. And he left. And then um, there were several years of like, just total chaos of him like showing up drunk and like screaming and being like super violent and like demanding that she, it was, it was just really scary. I remember one time he was yelling at her and like she was resisting whatever he was trying to say. And he ripped a door off of the hinges and like, shoved it through the ceiling it was it's that somebody could be that strong it was just sort of incredible I remember being both amazed and terrified by those things um yeah all kinds of stuff like that where he'd just like be completely overwhelmed and just turn into this like rage maniac um and it was it was during that period of time that um Gosh, I was 15 years old at this point, and my, it was the end of summer, and my mom was getting ready to go back to school. She was a teacher, and so she was getting her classroom ready, and my dad was being really hard to deal with, um, but he wasn't living with us. 
my brother was living with us, but he was um, on vacation with my grand my grandparents. And she came home one day and said, you know, I just really don't feel good. And I haven't felt good all day. And I feel like someone's standing on my chest. And I was like, oh, that's yeah, troublesome. And I couldn't drive at this point. And she said, your aunt is coming over and she's going to take me to the hospital. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is you really don't feel good. (laughs) That's not cool. And so my aunt came over and we all went to the emergency room. They had her in there for hours. We went maybe in the, in the evening, we just had dinner and we left afterwards and we came home and it was after midnight after they'd run all these tests and in the car ride home, she said, um, they think that I'm just like, super stressed out, which she was at that point, you Mm -hmm. know, she was like dealing with my father who was really over the top and getting ready for going back to work. And she had kids and all this stuff. Of course she was super stressed out Mm -hmm. and they said, but they couldn't find anything else. So they gave me some Valium and I'm going to take it and then I'm going to go to sleep. And Um, the last time I saw her was we were in the kitchen together and she, she was telling me that story and I was like, okay, well I'll see you in the morning and hopefully we'll have better day. And she just didn't wake up. What? Yeah. She died in her sleep. She had this undiagnosed heart condition that, um, I don't know. It's like an aneurysm, but it wasn't in her brain. It was in her heart and she just bled out in her sleep. It was really, really, really awful. Oh my God. And at that point, I know it's really scary. (laughs) At that point, um, I was, I was running a lot and my dad was running with me. It was, it was like a healthy thing that we were doing together And this was way back in the 90s. So we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have any way to communicate. Do you remember that like people used to like... Oh yeah, pagers. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, even after pagers. Well, we didn't even have pagers. We were like, you know, writing notes to each other. Oh yeah. Do you remember that? I still have some. I still have like middle school notes. Oh yeah. But like, would you ever like leave the house before your mom came out and you'd be like, hey mom, I'm with so-and-so. I'll be back at whatever time. And then that was it, right? That was it. That's it. Mm-hmm. So I had a post-it note and because I wasn't going to run with my dad in the morning like we had planned, um, because I was super tired, I'd been at the hospital all night long, I had a post-it note and thinking about it now, of course he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I wrote on the post-it like, um, sorry dad, I'm not going to be able to run this morning. We were at the hospital all night. Everything's okay. And I like put the post-it note on the front door. And that's what he saw when he came to pick me up to take me running. And thank God he came. Um, Otherwise it would have been me that found her. So, but I woke up, he, he couldn't get in the front door because she had the, she had changed the lock that's so funny that she did that. But he had gone around to the back, the backyard, and we had a sliding glass door, which of course we didn't keep locked because nobody locked their houses where mm-hmm. I grew up in the 90s. It was completely unnecessary. So he came in and he went to go in her room. 
And I woke up to the 911 call to him like screaming into the phone like, my wife's not breathing. And he was like trying to do CPR and it was, she'd been gone for a long time. So it was like not working. And, um, it was wild. It was a wild experience. Um, so I wake up and he's screaming. I like blearily like walk down the hall to her bedroom and she doesn't look right. And he's freaking out on the phone and he's trying to do CPR and he's like yells at me like go outside and wait for the fireman or the ambulance or whatever. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I I sort of wandered outside onto my lawn. And what I remember about that day was like all of these um, fire trucks and ambulances all just sort of like converged onto our little suburban house and like rushing in. And then everybody was walked calmly out after after a while and I'm just standing on the lawn nobody again no one's checking on me I'm just left to my own devices he finally came out um, and the corner van came and he said he came out and he was like your mom he broke the news to me that she was had passed away in the night and he said, you have like a chance to see her before the coroner takes her away. And I, I, I didn't want to, but I did. So I walked into her, into her room and it was chaos in there because of all of the emergency workers who had been in there and they'd pulled, they'd taken her all of her clothes off, but they pulled the sheets of the bed back up and I could see her chest and it was just black from all of the blood that had pooled in her chest. And she, she was gone. She was, she was gone. And that's when just the real chaos began because my dad didn't know what to do. And so he just didn't do anything, really. He just sort of <sighs> left me to my own own devices. Yeah, there was like a whole funeral, and um, it was it was really bizarre because the day she died was the day before school was going to start. Oh my, God. my sophomore year of high school, and so I obviously didn't go to school the first day, but I went back really soon afterwards. And that whole period of my life, those, those months, um, are, are pretty hazy as to like what, Oh, I can only imagine really was going on. Yeah. But, um, of course my dad was just like distraught. My brother, everyone's distraught. She was 42 years old. Can you even imagine? Like, I'm 40 and I think, oh my God, that poor woman hadn't, she didn't have a chance to live. No. no. She wasn't even getting going. No. It's so sad. I get, I I sometimes am still angry about that, that she got just snatched away like that. Um, Invalidated. Yeah. That you feel angry. 
yeah. about that. Yeah. So you're, oh, so after all that, you, I'm assuming that your father just moved back into the house? He did. He moved back in um, and just worked a lot. Mm-hmm. My brother was, gosh, was he 18 at that point? 17 or 18? Oh, you know, he was just about to turn 18. And uh, my brother moved out because my dad moved in. Oh, so you were left by yourself Yeah, with your father. Yeah. And that, that same year, he went to this, I don't know what it was, some conference or something. I don't know what he was doing there. And he met my stepmom. And they immediately got engaged. Wow. So that... That Christmas, he was not at home. He was, he was, she lived in a, in a city that was far, but not too far away. Like you couldn't go there and drive back in the same day. Mm -hmm. Um, So he went and spent Christmas with her family and left me. Oh my God. With your first Christmas without your mother. Yeah. And. That was that was a terrible, terrible, terrible day. Um, I of course had friends, you know, and they did what they could for me. And I had my I had my first boyfriend at that point too. And I, poor kid, he was probably like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> poor sweet kid. Um, uh, but he was he was a real source of comfort to me because he he paid me a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And um, my, I had my grandmother and my aunt. But really, was the, was no the grandmother your mother's mom? Yeah. And your mom's sister. Yeah, that's right. So, and they were aware of your father's oh, yes. ways, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, been a real sore spot. Yeah. I can only imagine like seeing your child or your sister be treated that way and feeling really powerless to oh yeah stop stop it and your your child not wanting to leave that person who was behaving that way um he was just such a mess yeah it's just like a real mess so he cut he what he comes back after christmas and the people that are helping you are your grandmother your aunt your boyfriend my little boyfriend yeah and i had good friends but your brother was checked out for the most part. Oh, yeah. Point. yeah. Yeah, he's definitely checked out. Yeah. 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 Um, so then, then you know, sort of life went on and um, they decided to get married. And on my 17th birthday, just right before my 17th birthday, they got married and went on a two-week honeymoon after moving me out of my house into this new house and they just left me again. They just, they really, they were just like, okay, here's like all, there's food in the house and there's gas money for your car and um, we're going to go on our honeymoon and there, I know. And there was like, there was no way to get in touch with them. If I, I mean, if I had, you know, broke my leg or something, they, 
would have figured out how to get a hold of them, but they were like on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. Right. Yeah. Without any thoughtfulness to you again. Well, not only that, but they, at that point, I was like, fuck this shit. This is bullshit. Of course you were. And I was like, I'm not, I'm done like flying under the radar. I'm so done. I'm going to do everything that I can to make your life hell. And I did. So what I'm hearing you say is because of the neglect, essentially, Mm -hmm. and because of all of the times that you've spent by yourself Mm -hmm. having to process this, you got to a point where you were just like, no. Exactly. I'm going to try to hold some power. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like to 17-year-old Anna? Like, what does that look like? Well, um, I started dating this boy who was really not good for me and um, partying. Uh, not staying out all night. Um, and it's funny to me that my grades never suffered because of that. Oh my I still, I still, um, maintained good grades all throughout high school because I knew like deep, deep within my bones that the thing that was going to save me was, it was always only going to be me. And I knew I had a brain in my head and that I had to get good grades and I had to pay attention. So I, I did continue to get, you know, do well in school. But um, I just kind of went wild and did whatever I wanted to do. And um, I started fighting back against him. He'd say things and I'd be like, no. Mm-hmm. I, what is what is getting wild mean to you? Is it like sex? Is it drugs? Is it um? Let's see. Yeah, sex. Uh, not so much drugs. I was um, I, I was a good kid, and they really scared me very thoroughly <laughs> in the whole mm-hmm. dare program. You know, I was like, well, I'm not, I'm never gonna do, I'm never gonna do that. Um, but I was drinking a lot and smoking and um, just rebelling how I felt that I had the power to Mm -hmm. like, you tell me to be home at midnight. I'm not going to come home. Yeah. Right. And then of course he'd be waiting up for me and there would be a huge blowout when I'd finally come home and he'd just completely lose it and be not helpful. Right. So that went on it's through all my high school years, the rest of my high school years, and I actually ended up marrying that boy who was very bad for me, um, kind of as like a fuck you. And I, I, I was so young that I didn't understand that I could have done that on my own. Mm. I I felt like I needed help and to get out of that situation. And so I just like took the first chance that I could. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that was a reasonable thing for me to do. It was um, not a good decision, but it was one of the only decisions that I felt like I had Mm-hmm. and that I could make on my own. And so I did that. Yeah. And that was a disaster. Well, you, you also, 
It really is. This, this whole conversation is, um, I can relate to so much. Uh, and when you don't have someone in your corner advocating for you and telling you that you can do that on your own, mm-hmm. you do not know. Yeah, no, you don't because you don't you're know. a child. You're a child. Yeah, you're still a and child. Your, your, you know, prefrontal cortex isn't developed. Decision making mm-hmm. gone until 28. Like it's not even fully developed until we're, which is crazy, crazy. But even re- regardless, you don't have anyone in your space saying your what your capabilities are. Yeah, and saying that I believe in you. Yeah, so, or like here's a path. Here's a path forward. Here's a healthy path forward. Even mm-hmm. there was there was absolutely none of that. So you I got married. How old were you? This is wild. Like I I think about this now and how my life is, and I just can't believe it. It almost feels like another person. I was. I I was not even a month into my 18th birthday. Holy crap. I know. That was a giant middle finger, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was bad. He was he was abusive himself. And of course, of course he was. Mm-hmm. Of course I would pick someone yeah. like that. That is love. Yeah. Isn't that crazy how how we can take what we think is safe, even when we know it isn't. Mm-hmm. And we still repeat the cycle Yeah, of that is, that is home. Yeah. Right. And he was abusive in a neglectful way or physically or um, just about every way you can possibly imagine, <sighs> except for him. I mean, he never raped me. He never sexually abused me. Um, but he emotionally, physically, mentally, financially, all of those ways. He was just like a very controlling narcissistic person. He was like a repeat of my father. Yeah. He was just a repeat, you know, just very self-centered and, um, this is how we're going to do it. And how old was he? He was only a year older than me. Wow. Can you even imagine? (laughs) How long, how long did it last? It was over before it began. I oh, mean, really? like it was like oh, not it was not a good idea. Um and the way that that looked is that I gosh, I was just 20 when I finally left him. Okay. I was just 20 and um that started another cycle of like crazy behavior and um another cycle of not support from my family who I needed support from I remember my dad was so mad at me that I was marrying this guy and he said which is another thing I can never imagine saying to my child if you do this you can never come home and so I never did like I didn't think I would have left sooner if I thought I could go home and get support, but I knew that it wasn't going to be there. So I knew that whatever like fucked up decision-making capabilities I had, like I I had to make them in order to get out of this situation and get back on my own feet and move forward. And that was really a chaotic a chaotic time in my life. And I, you know, I see people 
moving through the world in the city that we live in and think, you know, these people were in situations like that and they were in the place that I was and they just didn't have the resources that they needed to be able to write themselves. And so their lives just continued to spiral out of, out of their control. And I just thank God in my own will of iron for getting me out of that space. Who helped you? Me. So yeah, I helped me and I had some, you know, nobody does anything on their own. I had, I had some people offering just little bits of support here and there where I could, you know, remain standing. They, they like kept me on my feet. So I, um, was across the country at this point living in new England. And I had a good friend who said, you can come stay, like leave him and come stay with me. And that's what I did. And I worked and sort of saved up some money and with some begrudging help from my dad, got enough gas money to drive my car at just 20 years old, 3,000 miles home. Mm -hmm. And I was met with just disdain and disapproval for the disillusionment of my marriage and what they saw as my poor choices. Um, So your stepmom joined in? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, Not able to see outside of that. So I, I came home and was met not with like, this is a terrible thing, but like, I'm so ashamed of you for not being able to make this work. Like you can't stay here, all this, just no support. And so I ended up living with my brother for a few months and working at my old high school job, which was really a very humbling experience. Oh, I bet. That was I a bet. that was a very humbling experience and I saved enough money until I could um get myself down to the southern part of the state that we live in to be able to go to school and then that's when things really started to turn around for me was when I got my butt into college and started using my brain yeah. and um like really being able to live in a fairly calm, peaceful environment enough that I could sort of unwind myself from the chaos that I'd been living in for so many years. I I did really well in that environment and um, I'm so glad to the people who um, in my life, uh, all through growing up, who encouraged me to think and read and learn and just really pushed. Who are those people? Who are those people? Um, well, without knowing, you know, lots of, I had a lot of really good teachers. So um, our generation is the generation of our parents were all hippies, right? Mm-hmm. And so they believed in putting their money into education and paying taxes. And so I got a good education, a good public education. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of really great teachers. I was um, in a program from a young age where I learned to speak another language. 
um, all growing up. Also, when I was in high school, they put me in a lot of advanced placement classes, also in an international baccalaureate program. So I um, was surrounded by people who valued thinking and um, learning and reading. Oh, gosh, and thank God for that. I mean, it, it's yeah. a, that's very unique. It is very unique. And I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought, this is the way that it is for everybody, you know, right. in that naive way that yeah. That kids. It's very unique. I yeah. mean, it's very rare that anyone turns their, turns it around via school. Yeah. <laughs> because often like trauma like yours included, it's so much that you can't even focus on a book yeah. or, you mm-hmm. know, because of the PTSD is so bad or whatever it is. Yeah. So that's a severely unique thing that you were able to experience yeah all of it yeah and you know even when I was uh, married to that boy every time I had the opportunity I took a class and so by the time I got into you know a traditional four-year college I had had about a year and a half worth of credits under my belt so I didn't have to start from scratch and that was that was really good Yeah. yeah and um I excelled in that environment and was, you know, got a liberal arts education that I'm very thankful for and that I'm still paying for. (laughs) Of course you are. Of course you are. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to fast forward here. Okay, yeah. Why or how is your relationship, is your father still alive? He is. And how Mm -hmm. is your relationship with him now? Well, that's another... That's another sort of story all in itself is that, you know, I don't have my mother. Right. I don't have my mom. And so I always felt like it was really important for me to try and maintain a relationship with my father, even though it was so chaotic and unhealthy. I thought he's all I've got. And my brother, they're, they're it. Literally, that's it. And so I just tried for years and years and years to float those relationships. I'll, I'll keep it with my dad that um, we came to a, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing about my father is that he gives love and support when he feels that I am doing something that he approves of and he withdraws love and approval and support when I am not doing something that he approves of conditioned. Yeah. It's totally conditional love. It's not, it's not actual love, right? Probably doesn't know how. No, I'm no, there's no way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I met my husband, um, who has been just, the best thing that ever happened to me when I was in college. And, um, we've been together since we were like 22 years old. So he met me right at the tail end of this chaos. Like I was getting divorced and all this wild shit that had happened was just Mm -hmm. over. And, um, we sort of, like forged this love that 
mm. has been, see, all of that other stuff isn't going to make me cry. <laughs> oh, but that's okay. Mm. Your husband was a part of your healing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. like in the forefront of your healing. So, yeah, that's a, that's a thing to cry over. It's pretty powerful. I'm going to probably have to take many it's breaks. Okay. <laughs> I'm okay. glad I didn't wear makeup. So I I met him, like I said, right at the tail end of all of that chaos. And um, we both knew very quickly. I, I know that you know this feeling like this is my person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we figured that out like instantaneously. I've, wow. It was incredible. And... Um, not that there haven't been, you know, it's not been sunshine and rainbows. Right. The whole time it's been, yeah, it's been living, but, mm-hmm. but he, the, my relationship with him is, is, is the foundation of all, of all good things in my life and all of the. Yeah, it was, um. A turning point. Yes, it was a turning point. Um, Together, we, you know, sort of provided that environment that everyone needs. Everyone needs that to be able to succeed. Mm -hmm. They need, you know, love, acceptance, understanding, unconditional love, which I hadn't experienced since my mother died. And um, he he gave that to me and, and, um, I was able to succeed because of it. I was able to finish college, get a good job, um, and start the first like baby steps into healing. And, um, we had our daughter together when we were in our late twenties and she really has been, the catalyst, this is going to make me cry too, the catalyst for my healing is like, I would, I would do anything, absolutely anything to keep her from going through the things that I went through, you know, including the emotional equivalent of like cutting off my own arm, which is what therapy really felt like. I, um, she was a baby and then a toddler, and I started recognizing some same patterns um, that I experienced, like unpredictable behavior. Learned uh, behavior. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And just, it was, unpre- I was fairly unpredictable and irritable, and what I was living with was like severe crippling anxiety and complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. And you can't, maybe you can be a good parent with those things that are untreated, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I went to a therapist for a little while and it just wasn't a good fit. And then I stopped seeing her and then I was able through my job to get really good health care and then able again to like seek out a therapist that I 
fit with. And thankfully I found one. She was like one of the most important people in Mm. my life. Therapy is so weird, you know, because like you have this incredibly intimate relationship with a person and then they're just not there anymore. Yes. So wild. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's so important. I, I am transformed through therapy. So I started going when like every week for three years, I was just like, I've done hard things before I can do this hard thing. Mm I, I can do it. And so I just made a commitment to myself and just went and, um, learned that of course I have complex PTSD and an eating disorder. I know it's so gross. It's, but you know what? I wouldn't say it's gross. It's just <laughs> it's just the way circumstantial. Yeah. Well, you know, um, and then and then anxiety. And I think you know, I'm really this is a crazy thing to say. Um, I'm really thankful for my eating disorder. It really um it was a coping mechanism that really um helped me get through years and years and years of hard things. And when it was time to let it go, when I didn't need to, when I was safe, I could let it go, you know? I, I, so was that eating disorder going on throughout your entire childhood? Um, this is this is interesting. The first experience that I had with my eating disorder was the day of my mother's funeral. Oh. Where, um, and that's very telling, right? And so yeah. that lasted up until... Oh, two years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an insidious thing, but it's a coping mechanism. It's like a thing that you can control. Like I can't control a lot of things, but I can control what comes in and out of my body. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, what kind of eating disorder was it? I, I thought for a lot of years that I was bulimic, but it turns out I had, you know, atypical anorexia where I would, um, and probably some orthorexia too, where I would, um, if I ate anything, I would never binge eat anything, but if I ate anything that was bad with quotation marks, I would immediately purge it and then, you know, punish myself through exercise. So, um, That's, that's been an interesting healing process too. So, you know, going to therapy, um, provided a lot of space for not only healing, but like discovering who I actually am. Yeah. Truth. Yeah. I found truths. Yeah, I did. So, um, life got better and life got worse in therapy. And it's like this process that you don't trust is working because to get through it, like the only way to get through it is to go through it. And you can't, you can't avoid any of those things. You can't go around them. You can't go under them. You can't go over them. You have to feel them and deal with it and understand. And we did a lot of EMDR. Awesome. We did a lot of talk therapy and through those 
through those things, I just found a lot of healing and was able to tap into that internal strength that like kept me going through all those years of, you know, I really feel like I raised myself and got myself through college and, you know. Oh, you did. Yeah. You absolutely did. I did a lot of those things on my own and, um, that's sort of, that's totally badass. That's a complete badass move. Yeah. I'm like so punk, right? Yeah. I didn't have anybody to teach me how to do anything. So I taught myself, I made a lot of mistakes. Of course. But, um, I'm here, I'm standing, I have a nice life and, um, in therapy, I discovered that I was, that I had all these issues, which I was, you know, initially really ashamed by having PTSD. I was ashamed that I had anxiety, ashamed that I had obsessive compulsive disorder and an eating disorder. I was like so ashamed. But then like the sitting in that discomfort and understanding what those things mean and why I mean, no one wants to have those things. You don't give them to yourself. You don't assign them to yourself. Um, but knowing that they exist is like the first step of being able to like learn to live with them or heal. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was, that took, that took three years, weekly therapy visits. That's a lot. Yes, it's a whole lot. That's a lot. And, um, there was a period in the middle where I was like, this isn't working, I'm more miserable now than I ever have been. I don't know what to do, but I just kept going. And eventually it got better. And in therapy, I discovered some, you know, truths about myself. And one of those things is my sexuality, which I have always known about, but never had the space to understand or appreciate it. And was able to like finally come out as a bisexual person. And that was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying because I was 38 years old. I was old and, um, I had a lot of, you know, really strange experiences coming out because it's a process, you know, it's not just like one thing that you announce and then it's over with. It's like a process, you know? Yeah. It's rough. Um, my partner has a joke that She's always said that, um, and she's gay, she's gay, gay, not bisexual, but gay, gay, that's what we always say. Um, <laughs> she says coming out is like eating a banana in public in front of everyone for the rest of your life every day <laughs> because you're always doing it. Right. It doesn't go away. No, it doesn't. And then the stigma of the things, right? Right. Like, right. It's a very hard thing to do. It is a very hard thing to do. Um, but and I you did, had been with a man, yeah, and you still are. So I you, am, yeah, yeah. But that yeah. whole being able to discover that, and you have a family, yeah. I um was very comfortable hiding or or like not recognizing it because yeah. it was so easy to pass. Yeah, I am just you know people. I just people assume all kinds of things about people all the time. And one of the things that people assume is your sexuality based on the sexuality of your partner. Yep. So I was able to just sort of like always slide by as just this straight straight girl. 
Yep. You know, straight I'm just, white girl, straight white girl. Yep. That's just me. Hey. And, um, you know, that's never been true. Mm-hmm. And, um, I am in a monogamous hetero yep. relationship and people really questioned me when oh, yeah. they were like, what, what do you mean? Like mm-hmm. you're married to a man. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do you understand what bisexuality is? And then you'd have to like explain, yeah. explain yourself and ex- like educate people so that they don't treat you like shit. Right. Yeah. Or like that you can feel okay around them again. Right. And there's a lot of, you know, the onus is on the person who is saying things, not yes. on the person who is hearing them. Right. And so that was, that was a really interesting experience. And, yeah. um, I, I came out to my family. I came out to my dad and you did. I did. So you guys, you, you still talk with him. We still, well, at that point we still okay. talked. Okay. So here's the, be- here's the real beginning of the end. So, ah. okay. So I, I call him and my heart is just pounding, pounding. I am terrified of what he's going to say or if he's going to accept me or anything. And I was just, they put me on speakerphone because that's what baby boomers do. Oh God, they really do. It drives (laughs) me insane. It's so funny, the speakerphone. And, um, so I was like, well, I, you know, I have something to say and it's, it's not anything that I can you know, beat around the bush. And I was just like, I'm bisexual. And the first words out of my father's mouth were, well, you can't do anything about that. And I was like, what, what do you mean do anything about that? And he's like, well, you can't just go and start sleeping with other women. And I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? I don't, I don't want to start sleeping with other women Firstly, and secondly, and more importantly, that's none of your business. Absolutely none of your business. And so, again, I sort of, like, had to explain to him, like, why I was doing this, right. what it meant. Mm-hmm. And then I um, I remember I had, like, prepared all of these, like, all this literature about, you know, being bisexual or whatever so that if somebody had a question, I could just be like, well, read this. Right. Right. So I sent him all this stuff and he was like, Oh, okay. Well, I get it now. And, um, he never, I don't accept, accepted that. Right. He's very old school, traditional, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. very patriarchal. And even when I was growing up, he was very weird about like gays Oh yeah, super homophobic, yeah. super homophobic. Um, but just about my own like purity, it was mm. like a very weird. Oh, I never liked that. I always was. I remember even being very small and being like, you know, I didn't have that word in my brain, but like, fuck that. Like, yeah. you don't own me, right? Like, I'm gonna do what I want. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, so that happened. And then, um, 
that Christmas, right after Christmas, um, I started having um, some heart issues, which, as you can imagine, were it was extremely terrifying. Yes, it was, and it and it wasn't like I was making it up for attention, right? Which is, uh, I think, what he thinks I did. Oh, and um, I had some some bad tests that came back and I was having like weird heart events and because of my mother's history they were like very seriously looking into what was going on and I was you know nearing the same age as she was right I wasn't the same age but I was younger but, but close enough right and so I had to wear I had to go to the cardiologist all the time and like get all these tests done and I had to wear a heart monitor mm-hmm. on my chest mm-hmm. for like so two weeks so, so they could yeah. see. Right. Yeah. And I was terrified. I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to die. Right. I'm, I'm going to die. Yes. And I'm going to leave my husband and my beautiful child and it's going to be terrible. Right. And so I was like, well, it's now or never, Anna, you're like going to have to you're going to have to tell your dad all these things about yourself that he doesn't know. Right. Right. So part of this like flying under the radar thing that I have been talking about was, um, I think probably a lot of people do this, like really editing the things that I allow him to know about me, Mm -hmm. like really editing. So he only knows the things about me that I share. Right. He doesn't know that I've been in therapy for, you know, two years at this point. He doesn't know that I have a raging out of control eating disorder. He doesn't know that my husband used to hit me. He doesn't know that I was once a drug addict. Like he doesn't know any of those things. Um, and so I was like, well, I should, and I talked about this with my therapist a lot, and it had been something that I had been talking with her about before. Like, he doesn't really even know me. Mm-hmm. And he, if I'm going to die, <laughs> if I'm going to die, like, he should probably know his child, right? So I called him up one day, and I told him what was going on. And I was like, I just, like, there's some things about myself that I want you to know. And I told him about all those things. And, um, and not blaming him for any of them. I, I didn't say like, you're, you know, my eating disorder is a result of my trauma, which you caused. Like right. that, that's not the, the way in which I framed mm-hmm. the delivery of this message. Mm-hmm. I just wanted, I just truly wanted him to know who I was. Right. And, um, I just sort of like laid it all out there. Like I told him everything <sighs> and he did not take it well. He like just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled into this like deep depression or something or like a I don't know like he was not able to accept it and was just like you know like trying to grapple with all of the things that he just learned about his child. And like, was he like denial or was it more like, um, gaslight, like gaslighting? Um, I don't, I don't know. That came later. At first he was just like, so sad Mm. that my life had been like that. Right. Right. He was like super, super sad. And then 
about a week later, I had been I had been texting with my stepmom and I was like, how's dad? And well, he's not really well. And um I was I I said something like, I just don't know like what else did he think was gonna happen? Like how could he have not expected something like this? And I, I said something like, you know, I was a good kid. I was a good kid and then I wasn't. And when that happens, the kid who's not doing well needs help. I needed help. I didn't need what I got. I needed help. I wasn't bad. I wasn't any of those things. I was struggling. And you never even tried to understand why. You just like, you know, removed support and love. That was the response that I got was to be isolated. And that's like the opposite of what I needed, right? And your brother. And my brother. Yeah. It's like two. Two first. Yes. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's really sad. It is sad. It is really sad. And so apparently she told him that I said that. And the next day he called me and was just like he was when I was a kid. He just like went through the roof and said some of the most hurtful things anyone has ever said to me like, you are never a good kid. All you ever did was get good grades. You have been the most challenging person I have ever known in my life. And I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. You are never a good kid. Just like, and I don't want to talk to you. And I was like, and at this point I have like a lot of skills, right? Because of therapy. And I was just like, oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry you feel that way, you know, just like totally blindsided that he would react in this. I should have known, Uh, but I was hoping for a different reaction at the same thing that he did. I just think that he can't. Oh yeah. It's narcissism. Like they don't take responsibility for anything. Well, yeah. Like I I think that if he, if he truly like understood the chaos and destruction that he has caused that he wouldn't be able to live. He wouldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't cope with it. And so he just like put it back on me, which was really, really, really sad and extremely upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't call him back. I didn't try to make it good because I, because of therapy. Because you don't have to. I learned that other people's, you know, bullshit is their bullshit, right? Yay. Like it's not my responsibility yeah. to like fix. No. It's not my responsibility to fix it. And Mm-mm. I think that that probably really surprised them because I had always been like, okay, well, what can I do? Like, how can I right. like make, how can I get that love and acceptance back? Like, what mm-hmm. is it that I need to swallow yeah. in order to get that? And I just didn't do it. And he didn't, he didn't, I didn't hear from him again until June. Oh, wow. And I'd kind of been waiting for this other yeah. foot to drop. I was like, he's not going to leave it at that. And um, he called me and left a message. And he basically was like, well, um, we need to go to therapy together so that we can work this out. And oh. I have a someone that I think we should see. And um, I'll wait to hear from you. 
And I was like, there is no way, there is no way that I am going into that like emotionally vulnerable place with him. That is not safe. That is not a good idea. That is not healthy. And so I just didn't respond. And I got an email from my stepmom pleading, pleading that I go to therapy. I'm guessing because he's probably been hard to live with yeah. during this period. Mm-hmm. And um, nothing. I was like, ah, you know, I, I responded an email to her saying, you know, I just don't feel like this is a safe thing for me to do. I, you know, I love him. But I'm not going to put myself in that position. I'm just, that's not a good idea. Another week went by and she sent me another email. This came through email, which is so weird, that just said, um, um, I haven't heard from you. And so I told your dad and his response was that you can tell her I'm done with her. It's triangulation, right? When someone's attempting to control. Yeah. Another relationship. Right. She's trying to, so manipulative. Yeah, it's really weird. That's how my relationship with my dad ended. He said, I'm done with you. I think that that forgiveness is just maybe what you said. It's like finding peace. It's finding peace. And um, maybe I just have a different view on it. I just don't want to let it hurt me anymore. You don't want to be hurt. I just don't, I just don't want to let it hurt me anymore. And holding on to it was just hurting me. And that, that, that saying like that, let go or be dragged. Yes. It like I was, you know, dragging that dead horse around and I just didn't want to drag it around anymore. I want to let it go. go. I just want to let it go. I don't want to I don't want to think about it anymore. I just want to like offer up all the love and compassion yes. that I have. I'm like, ty- yes. I'm so tired of fighting. Yeah. That's used. To, that's like the thing that has fueled my life. And I can just feel it draining out of me. This fight, fight, fight. Wow, Anna, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all those things with us. And I'm thankful that you did EMDR and you're on your way to recovery and working hard at it every single day. I really could relate to Anna's story. I also had a sibling that had an attempted suicide. Wasn't even close as dramatic as Anna's, but man, it got me. And I too was determined to fly under the radar and have had to relearn how to not do that as an adult uh, because of my own trauma. So Anna, I just really, really appreciated your story. And isn't it crazy how trauma can, even if it's just, if it's not a physical altercation, it can manifest itself in the same way. And often we dismiss people that have been through that kind of trauma because there wasn't something physical out of it. So what a great reminder to us all For Anna's nonprofit this week, she picked the Q Center, the Q Center here in PDX. They're um, really amazing. They help anyone that identifies as LGBTQ2SIA+. So if you are a part of that community, they offer safety, resilience, anti-oppression, learning and empowerment, inclusion, transparency. I'm a huge fan. Uh, They have so many amazing programs for these people sexual orientation programs, gender identity programs, addiction, mental health, veterans. 
seniors, youth, the whole shebang. Uh, I'm a huge fan of them. I'm really glad she picked this one. I'll put a link up on our website. And um, as always, my nonprofit is Rahab Sisters. I'll put a link up uh, as well. They are definitely in need. So if you have a few dollars, I would definitely donate to either one of these uh, nonprofits. They are all trying, both nonprofits are actually trying to build, keep their community going. And it's really hard during this pandemic. And please do take some time and follow us on WBY Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. LinkedIn, write us a review on Apple Podcasts, do all those things to help keep us going. Please write me, tell me some things that you're going through, tell me what you need. I'm currently still researching to get a blog going. If you're interested in sharing a story, hit me up. And as always, please lead with compassion this week. Keep it in your hearts. Reach out to people that are alone or feeling lonely. Now is the time. And again, thank you for bringing so much value to me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.